Church, let's pray together. Father, we praise you for giving us your word, for being a God who speaks, a God who has revealed himself so that we don't have to come to an understanding of, of your existence inductively. Rather, we begin deductively from what you have given us, drawing conclusions from what has been made and what you have spoken of yourself. We ask God now that as we turn to that which you have given us, your word which is without error, Lord, we ask that you would help us to come to know you better, come to know your salvation more fully as you have worked it for us in the person of Jesus, God the Son. And we ask these things in his name. Church, if you have your Bibles, if you would open them with me this morning to Genesis, the book of Genesis chapter 1, and find verse 2, Genesis 1 verse 2. Last week, we began our new year, we also began a new series in which over the coming weeks and months, I don't know if it'll be years, but coming weeks and months for certain, we'll be studying Scripture's first book written, I believe, by Moses, we talked about this, who also authored the other books, composed the Pentateuch, that's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and in which, we noted, our author begins his story, which is the story, that's the story of all of Scripture. He begins his story with a statement that introduced the Creator's identity, revealed the world's origin as linked to its Creator, and tied his work in the past to that which he is going to do in the future. In Moses' words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in light of this beginning, as we noted, we have a purpose. We have a purpose. We don't exist as the result of random chance. We aren't the product of impersonal evolutionary progress such that all we have to look forward to in life is the pleasure our brief time on this planet may provide while possibly contributing to our species further development before returning to the non-existence from which we came. So you aren't, as Richard Dawkins likes to express it, you aren't a statistical improbability on a colossal scale. You have a creator who had a purpose, not only in what he did in the past, but who did it when he did it, with his eyes, so to speak, already on the future. And so we concluded, in light of this beginning, our lives aren't composed of random points on a line of eternal indifference. Rather, we exist at and for God's pleasure. It's truths. I believe our author now will develop in the verses that we're going to consider as we attempt to cover in less than an hour what God accomplished in the course of six days. So buckle up. And would you follow along as I read Genesis 1, continuing now with verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seeds in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And he saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds of the air, and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, 
the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, and so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And may God bless the public reading of his word. That's a lot to take in, isn't it? <laughs> if you were with us last week, we managed a single verse. Today, we're attempting 31. That's why you saw some come in with lunch pails. Now, we're not, we're not going to be able to address, obviously, everything that's covered in these six days of creation. So what I'd like us to do this morning is to consider this text in light of the emphasis, John Selhammer's, one Old Testament scholar, one emphasis that he calls God's preparation of the land. His emphasis, God's preparation of the land, where everything that God creates, he does so that it might be given as a gift to his creatures, who then are tasked with safeguarding this gift through their obedience. And this is a theme, this theme, this land or, or a habitation for God with people, this is a theme that runs throughout the Pentateuch, and in truth, it runs throughout the whole story of Scripture, doesn't it? For those who are familiar with the story of the Bible, you know this, this is a thread that God, as God seeks, this thread that runs throughout, as God seeks to take his people to a land in which he promises to live with them, but, as in the garden, in which they mess it all up, don't they? Leaving God to, to come himself, to promise to come himself and establish his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven where his people may once and for all dwell with him, the creator who we saw introduced last week. So, our text's tale of these six days of creation, as Moses records them, serve the story, Scripture's overarching story, by introducing this key theme that leads us to praise God for His gracious gift of the world, or, or the land, to humankind. And what a gift of grace this is. Where we may first note of this land so prepared, I believe, it's God's gift, like we talked about with our children. This is God's gift because he prepared it. He prepared it. And this is the, the natural follow-on from all that we saw last week where God created the heavens and the earth, meaning everything. And, and since prior to everything's creation in the beginning, all was all that was was God, he clearly created it from nothing. God's gift of this land, it wasn't like that repurposed kitchen towel or your ugly sweater or that other thing of which you have two, and therefore you took the second one with you to the office Christmas party to give it as a gift. No, this gift was like he is, exclusive, originating in his essence as it did, when it did, because he desired it to. So God prepared this land for his people in church. I believe that this serves to answer the question that sometimes is in the field of, or is asked by theologians, sometimes in the minds of laypersons, but more often it is in the concern of, of science. But is there life? The question, is there life? Meaning, is there human life on other planets? Maybe you've heard that question asked before. Well, and we know there are other planets, not only because we can see them, but because the scripture tells us God created them. However, the world, or the land, God prepared for humanity. This is an exclusive 
single issue, one of a kind gift from the God who certainly could have created as many as he wanted to. But due to this gift's uniqueness, he clearly didn't want to. Revealing, I believe, the intimacy of his personal connection to his people. So the land is God's gift because he prepared it. And second, because he used a specific process. Again, like we talked about with our children, where this, this point, this process that God employed, this has the potential to keep us in our seats for the rest of the day if we were to let it. Because there's, there's so much packed into these, these days of creation as Moses recorded them. And so I'm just going to attempt to summarize these six days and do so in a way that bears or shows how this process bears on God's gift. Beginning with day one, where God first speaks, let there be light, and there was light. So prior to this first sound of God's voice, or, or better, God's word's first work. Because we know in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and all that came into being was brought about through this word. So prior to this, this first work of God, we're told, verse 2, that the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Where I believe that this is a description of the world's or, or the land's condition, world or land. I'm going to, just so you'll know, I'll be using these two terms interchangeably throughout, so I'm taking them to mean the same thing, world or land. I take this verse 2 description here to be a description of the land's condition before God's preparation. In other words, prior to verse 3, we have here in our text everything that is existing because God has created it, as we saw last week in verse 1. But it's not yet prepared for God's people, although it soon will be as given to us by the reference of God's spirits hovering there, verse 2. That's an action reflecting the sense of a metaphor that Moses uses later in Deuteronomy 32, verse 11, that hovering, if you want to make a note to self, later, Deuteronomy 32, 11, Moses employs that same metaphor where there, Deuteronomy 32, 11, God is described as an eagle hovering over his people in preparation to work on their behalf. And so here we have God's spirit preparing to go to work, that's the action conveyed by God's speaking, where the first thing that we have is light. Light. And now, if you're here this morning and you are familiar with this story, you've been reading ahead in preparation for the sermon time, if your name is Bob Blankenship, then you likely caught that this light appears to precede the sun, and I call Bob out because we had this conversation, he, Mike, and myself in Sunday school about two or three weeks ago, Bob may remember. We might notice here that this light, so referenced, seems to precede the sun, because that doesn't get created until day four, right? Now, there are a number of different proposals as to how these different texts may be reconciled, lots of different ones, but the one I feel fits best explains how here in day one, we have God's speaking the sun's light into the darkness of the night, culminating in the dawn of the first day. And the sun itself was already created, per verse 1's references to the heavens and the earth. And so what we have here, verse 3, is simply conveying God's directing the light into the darkness, 
where then on day four, the references to the sun and the moon describe these bodies' creation to govern the day, the night. So not their actual creation, not their actual coming into being on day four, they're already existing, but rather they're being described in day four as their purpose for existing. That's, that's how I would reconcile these two. So that's day one, light. Day two captures the creation of the expanse into which God then places the sun, moon, and stars, according to verse 14, and to where the birds later fly, per verse 20. Now again, there's differing opinions, different translations use different terms here as to what is the best way to understand this expanse as it's termed. I think best use of the English term would be sky. It's what our NIV translators use, and so I think that's best. So, so here we have the light and the sky. Next, we have day three. But before we look at day three's additions, just let me make a brief comment on the differences that you'll notice between verse six and seven there. Where in the former, so in verse six, we're informed that God speaks. But if you look closely at verse seven, we're told in verse seven that God what? Makes. You see that? Now, scholars and those more liberal scholars have harped on how this apparent Contradiction undermines the creation account for is God speaking it all into being or is God making it? You have two different things going on here, apparently. But in an answer, this is an instance where if we remember, we're reading a story, not a literal account, a scientific journal. This is a story that we're reading. And so this, I think, helps us to understand what's going on or helps us to clarify this potential conclusion or confusion because here's a distinction that one scholar theologian calls a reader oriented function that's what this this reference serves as in other words by writing God said followed by God made our author is ensuring that we see God's speaking as the means of God's making you follow so in other words no one else did the making at God's speaking. He wasn't directing someone else who then did the creating. He himself, God is the one who did the making and he did so by his speaking. So we have light, we have sky, but now we move on to day three in which God prepared the dry land and seas as well as furnishing the dry land with shrubs and fruit trees before de declaring them all to be good. And it's worth, it's worth noting here how day two, if you look back, doesn't conclude with this evaluation, does it? Meaning God doesn't say of the sky, interestingly enough, that he saw it and it was good. He just simply calls it sky. And that's the end. And I, I think that Moses left out the good description here. It wasn't that it wasn't good, because we know come the end of the whole process, everything is seen as very good. So it wasn't here that Moses forgot it, but because the sky itself wasn't of direct benefit to God's people, in the sense that it wasn't tied to the land, which, as we've mentioned, is one of our author's key concerns. In other words, the dry land's goodness as it rises from the waters is this recurring theme that Moses is emphasizing. And we see this later on in the Genesis story when you get to chapter 6 through 9 where we see the, the, the flood and the emergence of the land. We see that again when we get a little further on in Moses' story when you get to Exodus chapter 14 and 15 where we see Israel escaping through dry land across the Red Sea. 
I think there's further support for this explanation when we consider uh, the things that Moses doesn't record here about the plants, for example. Because you notice he only documents the land's production of seed-bearing plants and seed seeded fruit trees. There's obviously more vegetation created. And we don't know this simply from science, but also from the biblical text, because you get to verse 30, and there we have the record of God saying, I give every green plant for food. So there's obviously more vegetation, more green vegetation than just seeded bearing plants and seeded fruit trees. So the point I think here is Moses is only telling us what is good as it relates to God's preparation of this land that he's gifting to his people. And thus we get to verse four, or day four, where we have the lights. And we noted about the lights. They're not, I don't think, created on this day, but rather they're directed to govern the day, the night, and mark seasons on this day, day four. And then we get to day five. And on day five, we have the water teeming, teams, the water teems with living creatures and the birds fly through the sky. Now, as we've noted, with the order of the sun and the stars, creation per their references there in day one and day four, it's possible here, day five, that, that what is described in verse 20 is then created for verse 21. Meaning God speaks what he desires and then verse 21 are formed those things expressed in verse 20. However, it would seem strange to me, at least to me, for God to command something to team, per verse 20, and to fly, per verse 20, that has not yet been created, hasn't yet been formed. And so I think that, and I'm not alone in this, but I think there in verse 21, that reference to their being created is in fact a back reference. It's pointing us back to, to verse 1, when everything was made. And so what we have there in verse 20 is, is actually a description of God's making, once again, the land suitable for his creation. Specifically, in this case, the fish and the birds. And I think this notion is consistent when you take simply that term team and you see how it's used elsewhere by Moses, our author. In, he uses it in Exodus in chapter 8 and verse 3. So if you wanted to make a note to self, circle team in Exodus 8 verse 3 in, in Exodus he uses that word to describe the plagues that occurred in Egypt, where he says the Nile will teem with frogs. Now, obviously, the Nile wasn't creating frogs, but it was certainly filled with them, as we know, filled to overflowing. And so just as the river didn't create the amphibians, neither did here the waters create the things that filled them. They were simply being prepared for them. The creating or the, the coming into being that occurred, I think here as per our creation account, per, occurred in verse 1. Now, as a caveat, nobody, not everybody's going to agree with this interpretation, and that's okay. You may have read this in preparation for this morning, have come to different conclusions, and that's fine. What I think we can all agree on is how our author's main concern, his main point here, is to separate all the living creatures that are being formed into three categories, three groups. We have sea creatures, we have sky creatures, and then we have the land creatures, which include people per day six. But we're not to day six yet. So before we look at day six, notice there in verse 22, there's included a first reference to divine blessing. 
Moses writes, verse 22, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. Now this notion of blessing, just like the land, is a central concern to Moses. For those of you who are familiar with this story, you know throughout this story that Moses is telling, we see God time and time again promising to bless and specifically as it relates to verse 22 here, to bless with life, which is God's gift to begin with, and it's that which is lost, as we who are familiar with the story know. That's what's lost in chapter 3, isn't it? And so as one commentator observes, what's at stake in this program initiated in Genesis 1 is the regaining of eternal life after it's lost. For that's the ultimate aim of the blessing that's promised to and through the seed of Abraham, when we look at Genesis 15 and 12 prior. And we know that promise pertained to Jesus. But Moses didn't know that. And at this point in our story, humanity is still waiting in the wings, aren't they? So let's move on and consider day six, on which were created the living creatures that dwell on the land and human beings, where the living creatures, so referenced that I think we see, are further divided into three groups. You have livestock, creatures that move on the ground, and wild animals, while human beings are given to us as being male and female. Now, at a glance, the differences or the difference between verse 24 and 25 there might seem a carbon copy of verse 11 and 12. However, if you look closer, on day 6, so the reference is coming out of verse 24 and 25, on day six is added this very important clarification. We can't miss this. Where before, in verse 11, God said, let the land produce. And then verse 12, the land produced. Verse 24's, God said, let the land produce, is followed by verse 25's, God made. Did you see that? Meaning while the land gave rise to plants, per verse 11 and 12, God directly formed, per verse 24 and 25, all living creatures. The divine word that brought both into being, that was certainly the same, but that which was created is fundamentally different, as given by the fact that vegetation was produced by the earth, while God made directly all living creatures. And friends, that's a truth that reveals, in my opinion, how the life that these two entities share is fundamentally different. And I think this is a helpful reminder to us all, particularly as we live in a day, in an age, with a growing, rightly so, a growing awareness of our planet and the much that we have done and therefore are guilty of as regards its present state. We need to care for our planet. For God's original directions, we need to care for all that we've been given. We are to be stewards However, we must be careful not to confuse the value of plant matter, vegetation, with that possessed of living things. The two are not the same. Nor are all living things, as seen here where God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And to humanity, God also gave the responsibility to rule over other living things, all other living things, the fish of the sea, 
the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and all the creatures that move along the ground. And in these specifics, Moses distinguished, clearly distinguished humanity from all other living things because, number one, rather than being made each according to their kind, as everything else to this point has been described as being created, people are formed in what? The image of God. Now, there's so much that we could say and will say about this, but we're going to save that for next week. Right now, just note, this distinguishes people from animals, birds, fish, everything else. Also, people are here described as being made male and female. And Church, this is huge. Huge, and as we'll discuss next week, for all manner of reasons, particularly those which are pertinent to us who live in the 21st century. Huge. But for now, just notice, Moses doesn't mention this as regards any of the other living things that were made. And yet we know that they were, don't we? Not only because science makes it clear that they were, but going just off of the biblical text, by the time you get to floods, Genesis 6, you recall how Moses notes there, Noah was told to collect two of every living thing, male and female. And yet here in Genesis 1, he only mentions the sex of people. Significant? You better believe it. Just as is the fact that only humanity is given dominion in God's creation. Where in addition to distinguishing people from everything else, this role also serves, I believe, to show how humans are like God as we reflect his image and responsibilities. This is a truth that we'll endeavor to unpack next week. But just for now, one further thing. You notice how Moses doesn't distinguish people here? You notice how there's no mention of race? No, no mention of race. And I recognize that at this point in the story, languages have yet to be addressed. The diaspora, which follows Babel, is many years in the future. But the point remains, at least in my opinion, for Moses, people weren't defined by their ethnicity. Now, such distinctions weren't unimportant, as the story makes clear, and as we move through it, we'll see. But one's value in the Creator's sight, according to Moses, would always be as either a man or a woman made in the image of God. In church, what that means then for us is that people matter, all people. As our little Sunday school jingle goes, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious. And there's lots of other colors we could add, but it's true. And so what we can't allow is for people and their distinctions created to impact our interactions with our fellow human beings. Because God's gift, God's gift, and here I'm talking about the land, but God's gift was given for everyone, where I'm convinced that this gift, the land gift, portended the gift, whom Moses knew was promised, even though he didn't know his name. And I think he knew it because God's gift is a grace gift. Grace gift. Moses, his creation account here clearly describes God's gift of the world to humankind as undeserved. There is no onus on God to provide all that he does here. As, as we've just seen, God prepares this gift. 
And he presents it following a specific process that reveals his person as he lovingly and intimately prepares a place for the objects of his affection while making promises to bless them and to provide them with life, life which is only found in himself. And sadly, within three chapters, they've scorned and they've abandoned all of this. So, so all that Moses records here, he does so. And he does it with this subtle but, I believe, certain emphasis on grace. And, and this emphasis only becomes clearer as the story progresses. In fact, if you were to get to Exodus 15, there's a poem that Moses incorporates following Israel's escape through the Red Sea. And it actually follows the pattern that we have here in Genesis 1 of God gifting his people a land preparing it for them, and then entrusting it to them, pending their obedience, only there, so this is Exodus 15, there he directly addresses the connection between God's grace in creating the promised land and its ties to his covenant with his people. And we see Moses do this very same thing again in Deuteronomy chapter 32, where there, 32, he has this song once again following the pattern that we have here in Genesis that we've just mentioned in Exodus 15. Only in Deuteronomy 32, the overtones of grace are unmistakable. And so if you have time later on today, I would encourage you, go and look at Exodus 15. Look at and read Deuteronomy 32 and see how these poems that Moses also wrote follow this same pattern with this unmistakable emphasis on God's grace. And church, the, the beauty of this grace for me is its presence from the beginning. Meaning God doesn't suddenly become a gracious God when his initial efforts fail and humanity falls. He doesn't start the story as a God who provides his people with a land for pragmatic reasons and then has to adapt in light of the garden's developments. No, what we see from the get-go in Genesis chapter 1 is how God gives graciously, lavishly out of who he is for his purposes. So do you know this God? Do you know this God? And as we're two weeks into this new year, is the God that you serve Scripture's God, a God of grace? He doesn't operate on a quid pro quo system. He doesn't give you because you deserve. And your great ambitions for 2020 haven't impressed him or obligated him if you're even sticking to your resolutions still. He isn't obligated to work on your behalf. The story, this story's God does what he does independent of influence. He saves by grace because he gives by grace, because he's a God of grace. He gave us this world graciously so that we might live with him. And when our sin separated us from him, he gave us his son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, won't lose the, the blessing he pledged in the garden, the blessing of life as he is, but will have it in all its fullness forever. And friends, I, I pray that we all know this God. But it could be this morning that you're here and you're not sure. As we've looked at this story, as short as it is to this point, and you've, you've begun to realize that your God, he's too small. He doesn't have the power of Moses as God displayed as he brought all that is into being out of nothing. He certainly isn't a loving God like the scriptures make clear here as he created everything that is so that we might possess it and by doing so enjoy him. 
It might be that the God that you serve this morning obligates you to obedience and acts that you hope you can keep in order to make him happy. And maybe when you get to the end of life, find reward. Friend, if this is you, then I hope and pray this morning that you won't leave without coming to speak to me or one of our elders. Because the God Moses is describing is a God who gives and does so graciously. He graciously gifted us the world. And he also graciously gifted us himself in his son, who is Jesus, who died to save us from our sin. Would you pray with me as we close? God, we recognize this morning that in the scriptures we have the account of your grace, the story that you have told. And Father, while we acknowledge there is much that we may not fully understand, what is abundantly clear is our brokenness and your perfection, your grace and our need of it. Father, thank you for not only giving us life in this moment, but giving us the hope of eternal life that can only be found in you, and that you have worked that for us, again, just as you gifted us all that we have by grace, through faith in Jesus. Lord, and I, I pray this morning that if there are any that do not know this, this gift, Father, that they might this morning, by having heard what you have worked for them, had their hearts' eyes opened, and that they might rejoice in the Lord as their King. But if there's questions, then God, as we sing in a moment, I pray that they would come and find me or speak to those who are around them. For God, this is the beauty of what you have worked. It's given graciously. There is nothing we could ever do to deserve it. And our times of corporate worship simply remind us of this beautiful fact. And we rest in it deeper in our dependence on a God who can and will and has promised to always provide and to keep us. Father, we rejoice because you are our King. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church,